You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 136 for Monday, the 6th of May, 2019. And this is a return to interview episodes, which are going to run on the first Monday of each month for the next five months until Monday, the 2nd of September, 2019. My guest today is Kirsten Oliphant, who's a writer, blogger and podcaster. Now, I first got connected online with Kirsten when I discovered her excellent creative writing podcast. At first, she tended to focus more on internet marketing tips and tools, and she'd published a variety of books, usually about online matters, and had some small success with that. However, in 2018, Kirsten doubled down on her writing and began a series of sweet romance books, writing them to market as Emma St. Clair. Now, this strategy has paid huge dividends for her. And since returning from a summer podcasting break in September 2018, Kirsten has been sharing some excellent information about how she's achieved her amazing income success as an indie author. When we chatted for the podcast, I asked her to talk me through her early attempts in self-publishing. When I first started self-publishing, it was actually, I'm trying to think, 2013. uh, And I had not really thought about self-publishing. It was a very different world back then. And I was coming out of an MFA program. So self-publishing still, to me at least, but also to a lot of the world back then even more had that sort of, oh, you can't get your book published. You're self-publishing. How cute kind of feel to it. Mm. And so that was like where I was coming from. Uh, But I wanted to write a devotional book. And so I created a Christmas devotional. And that actually was the first thing I put up uh, under my own name, under Kirsten Oliphant. And that sold really well. And I was really excited about. I didn't expect it to be a big money maker, but I think I did um, a free day and ended up giving away almost 20,000 copies. Again, different time. (laughs) Now that I'm doing free days, I'm like, oh yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, And anyway, so I I did that and then I've published a couple now that I've been doing some kind of work with authors on platform building and things like email lists. I put some other nonfiction. So that's all nonfiction. And really the kind of fiction I was writing back then, which I wasn't writing very much of just because we've got five kids and they were super little then all of them and, uh, or not, we didn't have five then, but you know, building up, we've had a lot of kids in like nine years. So we had lots of little children. I was writing, you know, dark literary fiction and I just could not get my brain to go there and also parent children well. So um, that was what I kind of planned to put under Kirsten Oliphant and still may, like I, I'm not saying I'll never put fiction under my name. Um, but I started the pen name because I know for marketing purposes and for, uh, you know, readers not being confused when they look and see a romance book and then a book on email lists. I mean, obviously like I'm not saying buyers are dumb. We're all very intelligent people here. However, from a, at a glance standpoint, when people hit sales pages and they see those things, that's confusion. And that can lend itself to new sales or fewer sales. And so I wanted to launch a pen name. I also felt like I wanted to see if I could successfully launch a pen name without using the other platform that I had been building for years. So when I launched the Emma St. Clair Clean Romance, um, I really did not use the things that I had built. Um, already. I had an email list of almost 5,000 people. I didn't use that. Uh, And I had another email list of around 2,000. Didn't use that either. So it was really starting from scratch. And I wanted to kind of challenge myself to see if that was something that I could do successfully. And here we are a year later. Yes, (laughs) I was able to do that. Well, we'll be deep diving into the experiences of Emma Sinclair shortly. But I I want to go back into the origins first, the origin story. Uh, Because you mentioned (laughs) there that you did a Master of Fine Arts in Fiction. And also when I was reading around about you, I didn't know this, that you had an agent once. So you were going through the trad route at one stage. (laughs) Yes. And I actually uh, still touch base with him every year. Like, hey, I'm still here. And he's like, send me your manuscript. I actually had a book get all the way to New York, um, had great feedback from publishers, and then they didn't buy it, which is like the kiss of death, because it's not even like 
they're like, fix this and then we'll take it. It was like, we love it and we're not going to buy it. Um, and that was literally the feedback I got from everyone. So I did get passed around. I had an agent, then she got pregnant and stopped being an agent, passed me to another agent who got pregnant and stopped being an agent who passed me to her husband. And he has not yet gotten pregnant. So he um, is still there. I have not told him the other stuff that I'm doing. And it's been a few years now. So like, it wouldn't shock me if he has retired or something. I don't, you know, know him well, but he did say there was enough interest to send a second book, but I just have not had enough um, brain whatever I need to <laughs> work on uh, a second book that would be kind of more in the vein of what they were looking for. So I haven't necessarily shut the door. There may be books I write that would be more fitted to a traditional route. But as I continue to build, um, you know, my audiences all together, at some point, I would love for everything to be um, under my name, it's it, to some degree, whether it's Emma St. Clair with Kirsten Oliphant, you know, listed on the eBooks and things like that, because there are people who do read both um, things and with the other pen name I'm launching. And, you know, it's really nice when you're big enough that you can kind of say, I read all of these things. Um, and, you know, your readers will either read them all because they love you or they'll just pick and choose. But I think when you're starting out, it's really different. I'm not Stephen King. I can't just decide to uh, publish whatever and people will buy it because I'm Stephen King. I don't have that. Um, so I may go back and do a traditional route, but I think my view on it will be very different. And I will uh, I don't think I, I have all my eggs in that basket either. So it's going to be a different position when I go into it, if I go into it, where I think I'm a lot less. Uh, emotionally invested in the outcome. I mean, it was really crushing to get a book all the way to New York and to publishers and then not have it go anywhere. Um, especially when the feedback had been so good, uh, that was just really crushing. But I think now I'm less crushed. Cause I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'll just do it myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I feel like I wear a lot of hats, um, and kind of keep straddling the line, um, in terms of indie publishing, which I feel like I'm much more invested there, but I haven't, you know, completely written off traditional publishing either. Now, you've tried a lot of things in your career. So I know, for instance, you've done roller derby. You're big into roller derby. There is, a, <laughs> yeah. you've got this hilarious, and I know it's very well viewed video on YouTube where you demonstrate <laughs> how to, <laughs> how not to roller paint a wall, which is just, which is just very funny. Uh, uh, but you've, you've had blogs and sort of mom blogs, and I think you've done recipe blogs. You've done a lot of stuff, haven't you? I have. I, I'm definitely one of those people with a lot of interests. And when I get bored, I move to the next one. And back when I was doing this for fun, I mean, so after we had kids and I really felt like I couldn't write novels, I have a lot of creative energy and blogging became where that went. I mean, I started writing blogs back in 2005 or 2007, and they were really just online journals at that point. Um, and that shifted when I started getting more and more of an audience. Cause again, I'm a writer. And so my blog post started drawing in people I didn't know, which again, back then in the blogging world, I was like, that's really interesting. Not sort of what people are expecting and going for. Um, so as I started gaining an audience there, I started making money there. So I was doing sponsored posts for things like auto insurance companies and diapers and for, you know, McDonald's and, you know, bigger companies like that. So while I was not writing novels and felt like that was not something I could do, I turned to the blog and it was much more of a lifestyle blog. I did mom blogging and, uh, you know, food recipes. I love creating food and got into food photography a bit. Um, and then yes, there's the, the, my famous YouTube video test. <laughs> my other YouTube videos have something like maybe a couple hundred or thousand or less views. And this one has over 50,000 and it draws the ire of professional painters everywhere because I paint rooms with a brush, not a roller. Um, and, but apparently that I used, you know, SEO, I did a little SEO research and that went crazy. It worked very well, but I don't write about that often. So it doesn't help your overall platform to have a video with 50,000 views when those people are just there to figure out how to paint a wall. And I'm not talking about that. So I have had a varied career. It's kept me interested. And, you know, again, here we are a year after I started one pen name and I'm doing another that's in a different genre. So I think I'm always going to hop around a bit. I would imagine that I'll be writing in several different genres before it's all over. Um, I also do like to paint and do music. Um, So those are things that I don't do as much. But again, I feel like I have a lot of creative energy. So sometimes when I get bored, I have to kind of change directions. But at this point, I'm also in a different position because my husband's job has changed. We're both working from home. And so 
my for fun on the side income is now like our main income. And so my, because of that, my goals and priorities have to change a little bit. Now, um, I came or I've discovered you originally through creative writing, the podcast. And when I started listening to, listening to that podcast, it was right up my street because um, you do a lot of uh, geeky stuff. So you talk a lot about blogging, about email marketing, and, and you, you really got into the, the geeky stuff. And I, I love that stuff too. So I, I, that's what I was initially attracted to and got loads of value and enjoyed listening to that. And, th- and then you kind of took a little hiatus over the summer and then you came back and it was like you transformed into something new. Uh, you, you're, you're a writer all of a sudden and you've got this amazing success. Let's go back to the early days of creative writing. First of all, what what was its its aim? What were you aiming to achieve with creative writing? Well, you know, I went into it. Uh, actually, I'd gone to a writing conference and kept running into people who, once we'd had a few minutes of conversation, would pull me aside for like these long conversations where they were like, please help me fix my Facebook. Because um, we'd start talking about Facebook and I knew all this stuff that I had. I, you know, when you're blogging and blogging, what I'd say kind of professionally, like you're blogging for money, you have to pick up all of these things. You have to know what Facebook is doing. You have to understand the algorithm. You have to know about Pinterest and Twitter. And I picked up all this stuff that I just didn't realize I knew. And then suddenly writers were realizing, oh, I don't know how to do this, but you explain it well because you understand me, a writer. So when I first started creative writing, I was thinking, okay, I want to help bridge that gap uh, for writers in, in the whole platform building arena, because I don't think writers generally like marketing or like social media or like promoting their books. And so I'd love to kind of be that person that stands in the gap and is like, okay, it's not so bad. (laughs) Email marketing is actually fun. It's you connecting with your readers. Let's reframe it. Let me help you do that and getting into the nitty gritty of that. And I think I was very, because where I was coming from at that point, I wasn't publishing books and I felt a little bit separated from the author community, because that's not where I was primarily living. I had been living in the blogging community for, you know, eight years or something. And so at first, I think I was much more focused on the platform building aspects. And the shift I've taken wasn't necessarily intentional, although it's becoming more intentional. Um, As I have, you know, developed this pen name and been selling lots of books on Amazon and kind of really dialing in my skills at self-publishing, it's taken much more of a focus there. Um, And again, a lot of times I follow my interests and I know, you know, I know enough to know that you really need to niche down and uh, pick one thing to be successful, but I'm not super interested in that. Uh, If I'm going to create a podcast like my podcast, it helps bring to some degree business. I have some affiliate sales. I've had courses and things in the past and done coaching and it can kind of feed that side of things. But I'm not really doing that right now. So in some ways, the podcast is a passion project. And I'm happy to kind of, you know, I know some people are happy and some people are probably like, man, I wish you'd go back to talking about Facebook, which I will. I will go back to some of those things, but more through the lens of being an author. So I think in the beginning, I was a little bit more hesitant to claim that author side because I did feel like, OK, I've published a few nonfiction books but I don't fully understand this world. That's not where I was living. So my goal was to sort of just be the person that's helping authors to, or bloggers as well. I, you know, I do still have a lot of bloggers to my audience, even as I'm shifting more, but I think I am becoming much more unapologetically in the author community, specifically the indie space. But I do hope to go back and talk more about social media and all of these different platforms because they are changing all the time. And so again, I don't, I actually kind of like that stuff and I do get really nerdy into those, especially email marketing, which I love. So I will shift back to that, but uh, sort of unofficially moved into self-publishing because that's where I've been living. And so it's a lot easier for me in the passion project that is the creative writing podcast to just stick with what I'm doing because it's very fresh in my mind. So in some ways, like the podcast was very intentional, but then has also just kind of drifted with me as I have moved into different spaces. I think we must have been podcasting for roughly the same amount of time. You're up to 158 episodes. I know that hasn't been continuous. So am I right in saying three, four years you've been doing it? Yes, around there. I always forget which year I started. I think it was 2015, but I don't remember because it's a blur. Well, well I, I'm, inter- I'm interested in, in your experience because I, I think podcasting is the best thing I've ever done for connecting with an audience. And because like, I started blogging and and doing a lot of online stuff like you. And I'm just, I'm wondering what your experience of podcasting is. 
I love podcasting as well. In fact, I think the very first, you know, I started out doing interviews and now my shows are solo, which is mostly because of time. My time. Yeah, I don't five kids. I don't have a lot of time. My recording times are weird um, for this is a great time that you have gotten to connect with you. But a lot of times I'm like, okay, midnight is a really great time. Who's awake and wants to do an interview at midnight? Not very many people. Um, I have some Australian friends. I've done interviews in the middle of the night. But, uh, you know, kind of when I was doing that, I feel like the first interview I did, I got off of the interview and I went and found my husband. And I was like, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. Like I had this high from just the conversation. It was so, I'm an introvert, but it was still very energizing to have a discussion about creative things and things I was passionate about and to hear other people's passion. And it's such a more intimate Um, you know, the interviews are more intimate when you're listening to them. The connection you feel is so much more powerful than reading a blog post. It's just a different level. And I'd experienced that listening to podcasts. I mean, I started listening to podcasts and two weeks later started one. Um, again, I jump into things and Mm. so, um, I don't have a lot of fear and when I get interested in something, I'm happy to do it. But I definitely felt like, um, the podcast shifted me into a new direction and I've taken some breaks, I did get hired uh, to run another podcast right after I started, and that meant I had to kind of take a break from creative writing, uh, which made sense for me at the time because I was getting paid, uh, you know, money to do it um, and for what we needed in our family at that time. But I eventually came back. It felt, you know, as as diverse as I am, I also it's really hard to do a lot, but I think with podcasters, there's there, I'm not the only one who started a podcast and then started three more. Um, it is addictive and it is a lot of fun, but it's definitely helped build, uh, my audience and opened a ton of doors. I've gotten a lot of speaking gigs because of the podcast, which I really enjoy. Obviously talking, I enjoy that. So, um, speaking gigs and gotten, uh, to be involved in some different projects that I wouldn't have been able to do, you know, without the podcast. I want to talk about the the kids because you've got five kids. Now, I know we had three kids and when you get to number three, you're outnumbered at that point Mm. and you've run out of hands and (laughs) and you've got five kids and a a dog, I I believe. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have a great Dane. I wish he was a good babysitter, but he's not. (laughs) So your house must be bedlam with with young kids. And And why I'm interested in that is because you managed to get a fantastic amount of work done you know, within that bedlam that must be part of your life with with young children. So I'm wondering how you wrangle and manage that. (laughs) I've got a few uh, ways I can share that. But, uh, you know, I will say, first as a caveat, I tend to be a person who works very quickly. Um, I read quickly and I write quickly. um, And I'm also not afraid to jump into things. So I think where some people, um, you know, the output that I have is just maybe not necessarily the goal that everyone should strive for, or it is not maybe the norm. Um, so I want to just say that because when I've talked to other people, I, I don't always track all those things, but I've gauged from those kinds of conversations. I tend to be on the fast side uh, with things. But uh, for me, you know, it's looked different over the years. Like I said, when we first had little kids, it was a huge transition. I mean, I, that seems like such a like cliche, but obviously it, it was a very big transition for me in terms of what I could do creatively. And so I've spent a lot of time being very frustrated that I was, you know, trying to deal with this agent and this really heavy book that I had written. Um, and I would get super frustrated by things like, you know, kids waking up when they should be asleep um, and things like that. And so I found that writing needed to be tabled at that time. So I think for parents, um, and it may not even be something other than parenting, there's just sometimes different seasons in your life where you have to give yourself a pass and say, okay, I can't do this right now. And that's okay. So I'm going to find something else, which is when I moved to blogging. As for now, how I'm managing it, um, you know, in some ways you get, you get more used to the chaos, obviously, but it is chaos. I'm looking at my office. It's a giant wreck. So like there are things that just do not get done um, in my house, my house, I'm not an amazing housekeeper. I do like to cook. So there's that. And I'm a lot of fun. So I have that going for me. But, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like, okay, we're just going to hire this out because this is not my skill set. And we could pay someone else to do it, but we can't pay someone to write my books. And so that was something as I started to make more money, um, we started to delegate not over not only some of the, you know, things that I'm doing online, but also some of the things about our house. Um, my husband is really incredible incredibly, incredibly supportive. So right now we're both working from home and we trade off. So I work in the mornings from, you know, I drop off the older kids. So we've got five kids, three are in school, 
two are in like preschool twice a week. So on the normal days, I drop off the three big kids at 730 and then I go work until about noon. And then it's like a tag team. And then I watch the kids and go pick up the other kids from school while my husband does work at home. And so that is a huge thing that that won't work for everyone um, because it's just the situation we're in. And honestly, we're really in that situation because my writing took off. Um, so we have been able to do that, which I love because I I love my kids, but I do not feel like one of those people that always grew up wanting to be a mom. I don't feel like I'm a super fantastic stay at home mom. I sort of would give myself a solid C, maybe <laughs> D plus in that area. <laughs> just keeping it real. Um, that just isn't for everyone. You know, I know I have mom friends who went back to work and were so fulfilled doing that and other ones who didn't and felt like they really needed to be home. I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle where I really love my work. And I feel like being able to do that work helps me to be more present with my kids. And I also don't work with them around. So if I want to get stuff done, either someone is watching them or I joined the YMCA. Uh, I don't think you guys have those in England, but it's basically like a gym. Um, but they also have like child programs and they have free coffee. Well, free, you're paying the membership, right? So you're really paying for the coffee in the lobby, but it feels free (laughs) in the lobby. And so I will go and check my kids into childcare. It's a two hour limit and I'll sit in the lobby and drink their coffee and write for two hours. So I've kind of found some workarounds. Um, but you know, again, it's shifted depending on the season that we're in. When my husband was working full time, the only writing time I got was those YMCA hours or at night when they were asleep. Now that I have the morning time, I found that I'm exhausted at night. So I'm doing a lot more of the writing in the morning and then sometimes handling things like managing Facebook groups or, you know, scheduling emails and things like that, that are more businessy and involve less of my creative brain at night. But it really does. I'm driven and I want to do it. And so I've made ways for it to be possible. But I've also at times given myself the grace to step back and, you know, either choose a different creative work that was more possible for me during that time, um, take breaks when I need them or, you know, whatever it is to adjust for the time period that I'm in. Uh, Because it is really hard. And, you know, it's not for everyone. For me, it's very life giving. And if it weren't life giving, then I wouldn't be doing it. From a listener's point of view, so I was listening to creative writing and then you announced that you were going to take summer off and I just assumed it's because, you know, kids home, busy and all of that. And then you you reemerged. I think it was about September, was it, that you, you came back with the podcast. You you suddenly popped mm-hmm. up back in my, the feed on my phone again and you were back. And then, as I say, you transformed into this successful writer. And I don't know whether I blinked and missed it, but I don't think you'd mentioned that, had you, on the podcast. I think it came out of nowhere. It, it felt like it did to me. I thought I had been mentioning it and I may not have now that I'm thinking about it Um, because sort of after I record a podcast episode, I've got other things going on and I move on Mm. kind of like it's ejected from my brain what we've been talking about because we've moved on to the next thing. But part of the reason, you know, again, like I said, I didn't want to utilize the audience I'd already built for the pen name. And so in some ways I had kind of keep I kind of kept it under wraps to a degree. Some people knew what I was doing, but I wasn't being super public about it. Because I wanted to see if I could do it in essence on my own, if I, if I could build from scratch this audience. And I wasn't sure how successful it would be. Um, and really taking those months off, yes, the summer is so hard for podcasts because, you know, right now I'm in a quiet house. I have kids in preschool. That's not going to be the case in summer. So I really do, if I record podcasts, I have to record them something like midnight. I mean, earlier than midnight, but late. And uh, that just wasn't possible. But I also felt like if I took those hours that I was recording and thinking about recording and writing the blog posts and promoting, and I took those and focused them just on the writing um, for the new pen name, I felt like I could have more success. And in fact, that was the case. I really kind of got over the hump of being able to write more quickly. Um, I started putting out a novel a month and um, really felt like I got the the genre a lot more because I was reading more in the genre. And that's when I think July was the first month I broke four figures with my writing. And then it's continued consistently since then, almost to five figures, but we're not quite there yet. Um, And I really think a lot of that was possible because I took away everything off my plate and had the laser focus on what I really wanted to do at that time, which was to launch the pen name successfully. And so once I felt like I could 
one, I had my kids back in school, so there were more hours, but also when I felt like I was at a more cruising altitude with the pen name and had more of a backlist and knew what I was doing a bit more, that I could come back into the podcast. So in some ways, yes, it was um, a lot more hush-hush. It was somewhat of a secret project that I was working on because I didn't want to, um, you know, to take the people that were already fans of me and wanted to support everything I did and move them into supporting me in this, even though that wasn't their main genre. Like if they read the books now, great. But when I started out, I really wanted to try to come from like, like a pure place of just finding those clean romance readers and not using the people that liked me and just wanted to follow me. In terms of your success and your your income from your books before you started the pen name where where were you because why why I'm so interested in what you're doing is it felt feels to me like you were where most of us are which is getting the work out but but struggling a bit with it is that is that fair to say yes absolutely so my nonfiction really was you know in, in some ways authority building um I did also build a course I have a book on email I had a course on email and so the book was supposed to be in some ways a funnel I had a free email course I have, which I still have, uh, the book, which is, you know, about $5 on Amazon and then, um, a course, but I really, the, the book was not intended to necessarily make a ton of sales and I am not a spreadsheet kind of girl. And so I did not track, you know, uh, I didn't spend a lot, but I didn't track the income consistently. Um, you know, I was more trying to get the word out and be known for that. I was building authority more than I was trying to to build an income from it, um, which it, it did work. And it, it has been very helpful in that way. Um, so yeah, it was not it really a significant part of my income at all. But I think with nonfiction, it's a lot harder as well. Um, you know, I can't even imagine putting the same effort, you know, that I'm putting into the Emma St. Clair pen name, putting that into my nonfiction, it just would not bring the same return. Um, you know, there, there's a difference, you know, between people who want to read a book on email and people who read clean romance and read a book a day and are happy to read a book a day or two. Um, and there are these whale readers who continually um, want to read where it's just really not the same with nonfiction. Um, so I, I think writing to a market that is hungry for books and can read a lot more makes it possible because again, we're talking about books that are like 99 cents. Like my newest launch is 99 cents which means you're making 30 cents per book. You have to sell a lot of those um, or get a bunch of Kindle Unlimited page reads if you're exclusive to Amazon uh, to, to make any kind of significant money. But I'm able to do that again because the genre has whale readers. Um, and if you can find a way to reach those readers who are hungry to read, 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 then you can make money. So I feel like with the nonfiction, I wasn't expecting to make a lot and I didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. So with Emma St. Clair, then, how strategic were you about it? Have you been consuming people like Chris Fox and the 20 Books guys? You know, were you writing to market and using that strategy? Well, it's interesting. I think I actually have the book on writing to market. I don't think I read it. Um, I know I didn't. I may have read a chapter or two. I'm somewhat involved with 20 Books, although it's such a giant group. Um, it's it's not where I hang out all the time. There was a group called the Writing Gals. and um, they are four very successful, uh, sweet and clean romance authors. And I started kind of following them. I'm not sure where I found their group, actually. But they were writing sweet romance, and they were talking about what they were doing that was bringing them success. And so I really just hung out in that group a lot. I started really reading the genre. And I think when I first started, I wasn't really reading the genre. I just knew it was... A genre, and I was like, okay, so it's romance, and it doesn't have sex in it. I can do that, and um, I really made a lot of mistakes that way. So it wasn't until so maybe if I'd read Chris Fox's book first, I would have been in a better position. <laughs> but it took some mistakes. Um, again, I jump in with both feet right away. That's kind of how I operate. So, um, and which is fine. I learn a lot through making mistakes. But following that group and following those authors who are writing in my specific genre really helped. So I was very strategic. Um, especially a couple months in, because when I first started, I was using, um, I think it's now Publishers Rocket, but what was KDP Rocket, uh, to research to find keywords for the uh, Christmas devotional I'd written back in 2013. I was just trying to update things and keep it fresh, even though I wasn't doing a lot to promote it. And that's when I realized that Christmas romance was like the number one search term on Amazon. And I was like, 
what's going on for Christmas books anyway? Um, and I was like, why are people reading this? This isn't something I understand. So I really started it strategically, but I hadn't researched the genre very well. Um, and so I think being very strategic, once I found some people who were doing it and sharing what they were doing, kind of seeing what they were doing and how I could make it work for me really helped as well as it just is so important to read in the genre you're writing. Like you just have to know the reader expectations. You have to know those tropes. And once I really nailed that down, that's when, um, that's when I found my first four figure month was when I actually knew what I was writing and knew the market really well. So I did okay. Um, but that third book where it really was right in the center of where it needed to be because of the research I'd done, that's, um, when I started to find the success that I have. What is then the formula for these billionaire books? I'm thinking page length, uh, cover. Do you put author notes at the back? Do you have a, a sign up for an email? What, what's your formula when you release a book? Yeah. So I think, you know, I see, I do see different authors doing different things, but I think from the inside the book, I think the very important thing is the cover absolutely has to be completely on point. And I see this over and over again in these groups where people are like, I'm publishing a romance book here's the cover. And it's like a really pretty artistic cover that would work well for like a traditionally published women's fiction book, but will not work for romance. It won't sell it. There needs to be a couple. And right now guys on the cover I have found are selling better than couples for me. Um, this may not be for everyone, but for me, they're selling better than couples or a woman on the cover um, in this genre. So it's very important to pay attention. Uh, my first billionaire book, the guy had on like a t-shirt instead of a suit. And when I got so when I realized like, Hey, you know, my guy's the only guy in a t-shirt, <laughs> I switched him to a suit and I started selling more. So think even those small tweaks make a huge difference in terms of being right there. And it's one of those things where you kind of have to not be emotional, uh, emotionally invested in your cover, um, which I think happens more when people are designing their own and they get really emotionally invested, which generally you just can't do unless you're a designer. Um, but even if you are a designer, sometimes you get more emotionally invested and you're not able to hear people say, this is not a two market cover. Um, and, or you're looking at the, at the genre. And if you look in something like clean and wholesome romance, that's a huge category now. And you're going to find a whole mix of books in there that may not be, um, the ones you should be comparing yourself to. I mean, I was looking at that, that genre and comparing myself to traditional books. So like Nicholas Sparks is in that category often, he wouldn't call himself, and I think he ha has said, I'm not a romance writer. Um, his books don't always have the happy ending. And so when you're writing in a more specific niche and really niching it down, you have to know the very specifics. And so things like, um, it, you know, it has to hit those cover. It has to kind of speak to the tropes that romance writers expect. And then you have to have things inside of the book, like the happy ever after, which seems very obvious, um, but wasn't to me. I definitely wrote a book that had a cliffhanger and got a ton of flack. And I took the book off Amazon because I was like, oh, I, I just didn't realize until I got these bad reviews that this was not, you know, you couldn't have a series in romance that was like a series somewhere else where you didn't know who there, you know, who was going to end up with whom. Like that does not work at the ending of a romance book. Um, unless it's something else, you know, I've seen that in some like paranormal romances or some other genres. But again, you got to know that niche. So for me, it's the cover is really important, hitting those tropes of what people expect. There's the basic story of the, you know, they meet each other, however they meet each other or see each other again, they fall for each other, something breaks them apart and they get back together happily in the end. Um, the epilogue is really important. Um, readers really want an epilogue where the couple either gets married or um, has a baby or gets engaged or something like they want to know kind of they don't just want the like, yay, now they're together. They want, and then the future. I do write an author's note. I don't always see a lot of um, people doing this as much in the, the kind of clean romance, but I have seen other authors in other genres do it, and I love it. So I've started doing that and sharing things like, here's where I got the idea for this and some more personal um, details about the book. And I found that my readers are really responding to that because I want to as much as I want to hit all the tropes and I want to hit all of the things right in the center of where the market is, I also want to stand out and I want my readers to come back for me. So I have also tried within that to create real characters. I don't want vanilla. Okay. The formula itself is vanilla enough, right? Boy meets girl, they break up, they get back together. That is so basic. So I've tried to find ways to create really 
interesting characters and good dialogue um, and things that will set me apart so that with, you know, hitting the tropes and getting the readers. And then once I get them, I keep them because they see something maybe different or, you know, hopefully better or more engaging with my work. You're writing the books very quickly. What's your word length with the books? Oh, yeah. So um, a lot of the authors in Sweet Romance recommend about 50,000, and that's my goal. But I'm long-winded, and so mm-hmm. they, my, they've been getting longer and longer. They've been, I would say mine are more like 60,000 to 80,000. Now, one of the things I haven't heard you drill down into in the podcast is is actually how you structure that writing. So I'm I'm very formulaic. I do I write three days a week and I write five thousand words a day. That's that's how I get the books done. What what's you must you're squeezing this in around children's times and things like that. So I'm guessing you must be pretty formulaic about this. Um, oddly, I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm very very much a pantser. So I. Um, I don't sit down with a formula. I don't sit down with an outline. Um, I get ideas and jot them down in like a Google doc, but not in a formula way. I also have found that if I give myself, the more restrictions I give myself, the worse I do. Um, And so if I give myself a definite page count, I struggle to hit it. If I don't give myself a page count, I exceed it. Uh, Well, okay, I don't give myself a page count, but I have one in mind that I like try not to tell myself is a firm mm. <laughs> word now. And if I do that, then I can hit it. I took some personality tests. I think it was like a Gretchen Rubin or what somebody had one and there were like four types that they broke it into. And I was the rebel. And it was like one of those things where it was like, even if you, if you see rules, you try to break them. And even if you set them, you're trying to break the, your own rules. And I was like, well, how do I fix that? <laughs> you know, like, what do I do if I want to make myself do something? But then you had to buy the book. So like, I guess I'll never know because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to buy the book, but I have to really, you know, so pre-orders are difficult for me, for example, because I have that firm deadline and it makes me incredibly stressed out and unproductive uh, the closer I get to it. If I set it up way ahead of time and right way ahead of time, I'm golden. But if I set up a pre-order, like last month, I actually had to move mine back. Um, and which means you lose pre-orders for a year with Amazon. So I didn't cancel it. I moved it back a week. And then I actually finished the book only a day late. So then I moved it back up, which you could do uh, to like the day after it was originally supposed to release. So I could have gotten the book done, but I got so stressed out seeing this impending deadline that it made me feel cornered in and just completely fried my brain. So for me, if I said to myself, I have to write 5,000 words Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would find myself vacuuming the house. I would find myself doing something else because that structure and rigidity, it, it, I can't uh, flourish under it. And I feel like that's the thing as you're writing is that you have to figure out what works for you. I would not recommend any of you doing what I'm doing. This is just what I have found to help myself get this done. Um, and I've actually a couple months, I've written two novels a month, not intentionally. If I told myself I have to do this. In fact, if I tell myself I have to write a novel a month, I would be stressed out. I just tend to, and that it works for me. But there was a month, um, in July, I had an idea. I was in the middle of one book, and kind of hit a scene again as a pantser, I kind of hit this place where I was like, I don't really know what I want to happen next. I feel a little stuck. I'll just start writing this other book. And I started writing it while on the treadmill at the gym on my phone, just typing with my thumbs uh, because I had this idea and it just was in there and I had to get it out. And it was summer. I didn't really have any extra time. There's no flex time because I was trying to work on the other book, um, you know, in my main writing time. And I ended up writing a book two weeks. Um, a 60,000 word book that was, um, it's my highest reviewed book, um, has done really well on Amazon. And uh, that was written mostly on an elliptical machine on my phone. But again, I didn't make myself do it. And I think you have to find the thing that motivates you and enables you to get the work done. And for me, that is not deadlines. I have them sort of softly in my mind, knowing that I can break them. If it gets to a point where I can't break them, that's when I really uh, start to lose it a bit. But can you give me um, a number? I'm after your per-sitting word count is what I'm after. I want to know what you do in a day or what you can do in a day, roughly. Okay, well, I don't know what I do every day. Um, I will say if I'm really on... um, you know, a couple of months ago, I started with this new pen name. I sat down and I really wanted to get some work done. And in, I think it was two and a half hours, I cranked out 7,000 words. Um, and that was 
no breaks. A lot of times I find myself getting, you know, the squirrel, squirrel distracted by all the things that was like, I sat down, I really had enough of an idea of where I wanted the story to go that I just wanted to get it out. And I took no breaks and got that done. That is high for me. Uh, because again, I get distracted by, by different things or sometimes get, you know, stuck in things, but I would say that's probably my max. Um, and I, but I really, again, I really have not been, maybe I need to do that just to, for the sake of questions like this, or just so I can know, uh, what my kind of average daily is, but you know, sometimes like right now I'm rewriting a book, um, and that I'm re-releasing. And so my word count is weird, you know, like I have a whole document of stuff I've taken out that's 20,000 words. And then I've got this, you know, 60,000 word document. And I don't know exactly because I'm taking out putting in what the word count is. So this is not um, giving you probably the answer you want, but that's the best I've got for now. And how accurate is your first draft? I, I, you know, you're writing fast, obviously. Mm. Um, is, it, is it a good first draft? Because I, I hear a lot of people say, oh, first drafts are rubbish. And I, I write my first draft. I think, actually, I pretty well got it. It's all right. It's all right as a first draft. I don't, I don't have to do massive deconstruction or anything like that. And for you to be hitting these kind of targets, you must be a pretty first time kind of writer. Yes. And I, in fact, I, in the past, I've said, and I would say this more about nonfiction, I loved writing what I called the vomit version, where I just get everything down on the page um, and then go back and shape it. And I think I write nonfiction a lot more that way. But as I've started writing the fiction, especially more quickly, um, I have found it makes a lot more sense for me to get a clean first draft. I'm pretty clean anyway. Um, Obviously, my proofreader and my beta readers catch a lot of things that are embarrassing in there, but but less so, I think, than is typical. Um, so I do try to write, now that I'm used to that, a clean first draft, but a lot of times because I'm pantsing it and kind of discovering the story to some degree, again, I have the framework of what it has to be because of romance, Um I know what I have to hit and generally where I have to hit it um, enough to the point where I can kind of feel it like, okay, I need this. This is the point where we need to have that, you know, moment where everything goes dark Um, because I'm, you know, pantsing it. I I think that there are times where I have to go back and sort of layer things in to the beginning. Like, okay, I've discovered this about this character. Um, You know, I just made notes to myself today that I need to go back and layer in some of the things I've discovered into the first part. But again, it's not a rewrite of the whole thing. It's just sort of layering more on. So I do think I'm writing a lot more cleanly now in my first drafts, whereas with the nonfiction, I would always recommend writing a vomit version first. And that really helped me to get the ideas out on paper. But with with the fiction, yeah, to get to get a book done a month, it's writing a pretty clean first draft. Uh, and getting that done. And then, you know, I, I sometimes will print out the whole thing at like a FedEx Kinko's or, um, you know, printing place and have it bound. And then I go through and write all over it. I found that that really slows me down. Um, you know, that can be really good, but I'm also pretty clean on my own. And I get more nitpicky when I do that over things where I'm like, okay, this doesn't need to worry me so much. I need to focus, you know, again, if I want to keep up the publishing schedule that I have, Um, I think I fidget a lot more with it when I'm printing it out and then I have to print it out, write on it and then go back and edit. And that takes me a lot longer with editing than it does to just do it on the computer. And I have found a good proofreader that I like. I have a team of like six to eight readers who are my beta readers and they came from, you know, my email list or, or people who just emailed me and said, I love your books. Um, I would really like to be a beta reader for whatever reason. And I found I had more. Um, And these were the people that were seeing sort of the unedited, almost the first draft version, like the first draft, then I went back through it, and then these people got it. Um, And I narrowed it down to about six or eight people who really get um, the genre and who are very good also at getting typos. So my proofreader is really good, but no one's perfect. And so every so often they will catch, with the last book, I think they caught four errors that she had missed. And they were pretty, you know... I'm glad they caught them (laughs) kind of thing. I want my book to be as clean as possible. I hate typos. They're like the spinach and the teeth of authors where you don't want them there and you, but it also is awkward when people tell you they're there. Um, And so those beta readers really help because every so often they'll say something like this felt slow and I'll ask them, you know, does anything feel slow? Does it, does anything bother you or take you out of the story? And so they are very helpful for that as well in terms of the process. But at this point, I feel like, especially with such a simple formula in terms of romance, um, 
I'm pretty easy to hit those marks um, on that first draft. I have written fast uh, one book a month uh, for the first time this year. So uh, I'm usually quite fast. I maybe do four over a year, four ninety thousand words over a year. So it's it's a reasonable speed. But um, for the, the first three months of this year, I wrote one book a month, the same sort of speed that you're writing. And, and I've got to tell you that I found it um, a bit intense for my tastes. Now I, I work three days mm. a week, and then I have four days when I can work on my other stuff. So I was writing, working three days a week, work, um, writing four, then back at work again. And then I found that a bit intense. Do, do you find that? How, how do you deal with that? I like a bit of headspace to think about the story. So I'm, yeah. I'm wondering how you cope with that. For me, it hasn't felt that way yet. And I think, you know, I've talked about, I was talking to somebody about this recently, one of my friends. I feel like because there were so many years where I wasn't, I was writing or being creative, but I wasn't really writing the kind of thing I want to write. And romance is maybe not my top genre. Like, I think I will end up writing things that I find more pleasing. (laughs) You know, romance was never something I read until I started writing this. Now I really appreciate it and I do read it. But, um, But I find it, you know, taking so much time off not writing novels, I almost feel like they all got bottled up and they just want to come out. And I have so many books in my head that I want to write that it's almost like I feel like writing one is just going to free me up to write the next one that's already in my head kind of jostling for my attention. Um, And so it really is a joy to me. If it stops feeling like a joy, then we're going to have to figure things out because I either need to maintain the income level I have because now it's not a hobby income. It's like, you know, part of the pay the mortgage (laughs) income. So um, if I don't find it a joy anymore, I've got to figure out, okay, can I do it anyway? Or can I scale up on ads and write less quickly? Because the reality is I don't think I'm always going to want to write a book a month. Right now I do, and that's fine. I don't think that's, you know, I don't know how long I can sustain that. Again, it feels good to me, um, and and so I'm not looking for a change, but I don't, I'm also realistic. I don't expect it's always going to feel that way. So then I've got to figure out, okay, if I'm not doing that, what what am I doing, or how, how am I going to continue to make this income? And I think the bigger backlist you have, Um, that's helpful. Like, I feel like when I go and launch this pen name that I want to launch, I want all the books done because it's going to be a series that you need to read in order that I want to have kind of that urgency to move through them. And I want to release them all at the same time, which means I've been kind of writing them as I've been writing the romance. Um, But I think to get that final push, I'm going to have to take some time off. And so I'm still writing a book a month, but not writing a book a month that's going to come up with income for a bit. Um, And so anyway, so for me, I think there's the joy of writing, but then there's also the understanding that to some degree, this is like a necessary thing. Um, The book's bringing in money right now, which is also thankfully not triggered that part of my brain that panics at deadlines. I kind of have to like not really think, like I know that I need to make the money, but I also have to kind of trick myself and like, oh, it's all going to be fine if you don't, even though... (laughs) really because we're both working from home it kind of does matter a lot more than it did um which i don't always like but i you know i told my husband the other week i said you know i'm really stressed out feeling like you know not for gender roles or anything else but just feeling like my income is like primary right now and he's like well stop thinking about it that way i was like oh okay and he pays the bills and does that so i freed me up to just be like I'm going to make what I make and not worry about it. And I was like, okay, just, you know, let me know if I need to like spend less on groceries or something. (laughs) So, but that's, again, that's my mental place of where I'm working. Um, And I think, you know, it's not always, again, going to feel like a joy to write a book a month. And when it doesn't, I'm going to have to reevaluate. And if it feels stressful to you, then, you know, if you don't have to do it, you don't, I don't want writers to burn out trying to keep up the speed that, you know, some people, it just comes naturally and it is a joy, but it, it can be, I know we can all compare ourselves to these people in Facebook groups. I mean, there's people writing faster than you and I um, in these groups that it can be like, man, I just need to push harder and do this. Well, maybe not, you know, that may not be your thing that may take the joy away from, from writing that you have. And so it's kind of a mix of balancing that joy with whatever your um, financial goals or obligations are to, you know, the work that you're doing. My big pain spot at the moment as an author is that I'm I'm managing to earn more than the average author, so I feel like I've hit a milestone. I'm I, that's that's good, but I feel that if I stopped, if I just left the books there on Amazon and stopped, 
that it would just die a death. If I didn't keep peddling, you know, if I didn't keep working, if I didn't keep trying for book bubs, that's the only reason I'm selling books. I don't get any sense that I've got an audience waiting with bated breath for the next book. And why I'm getting so much value from listening to what you're doing at the moment is it does feel like you've accomplished that, that you've got people waiting for the next book. Would you agree with that? And how do you think you've achieved that? Yeah, I would say I do and I don't. I literally was just having like a Facebook Messenger conversation with another romance author. And we were both saying, you know, our email lists are this size. When we send out a new release email, why aren't we making more sales? Like it really should feel like we're making, you know, a bigger percentage of sales, even though I know like conversion rates I've done. I've looked at that and conversion rates are low for just everything. I mean, I do feel like I've built up an engaged audience, but I also still feel a little disappointed every time I put out a book and I'm like, man, you still just really have to promote. I think when you hit that, that hill of like rabid readership, um, it's a way higher number. I mean, I think people may, I don't know if you have or talked about, or people have heard about the thousand true fans. I have. Yes. Yeah. That's been talked about. Yeah. I think sometimes we mistakenly think that having an you know, an email list of a thousand people is those true fans. And it's not, I think finding those actual thousand people who are waiting with bated breath is really hard. Um, and it's, it's long-term work. It's the, the kind of work, you know, I think I have developed fans. I don't think I have, I definitely don't think I have a thousand because when I put out a new release alert to my list of way more than a thousand, I'm not getting a thousand sales. Um, Sure, some of those people have been probably waiting on Amazon for the book to release or have been reading my, like, here's when it's coming out. Because I know I have authors I do that for. I'm like, okay, it's midnight. Um, I know in a few hours when it hits, you know, whatever Pacific time Amazon is on, this person's book is coming out. And I'm waking myself up to buy it. I know I'm like that about certain people. So I, I think I do have some of those on there. The key for me, not as many as I would like, I will say. The key is that I think the engagement, you have to do something other. You have to separate yourself. Like you have to write within your genre, but then you have to stand out within it too. And I mean, what I mean is not standing out like, okay, my cover is going to look different than everybody else's. You really can't afford to do that until you're um, Stephen King level and people will just read whatever. For the most part, those are the exceptions, not the rules. If a book with a terrible cover that doesn't look genre specific does well, it's an accident usually. Um, well, something else happened. You know, they got some kind of great advertisement or something happened like that. Um, and so for me, I've, you know, hit all the things that I need to hit to get those readers in. But then through being personal in the author notes, through writing personal emails, and, and I respond to my emails. You know, I've, I've gotten, I got an email a couple weeks ago from a girl who was 12. And she said, I just finished reading, you know, this book of yours, and I really liked it. Just wanted to let you know. I don't know if she was re- expecting a response, but I sent one and, you know, talked about how, how, what I was reading when I was 12 and how I'd always wanted to be an author. And she wrote back again and was like, I cannot believe you responded. I you know, didn't think you would. And I want to be an author too. And what are your tips? And so we had this great conversation going. That is the kind of work that builds those true fans. And it's not always going to come back to you in that way. You may send a bunch of emails back to someone who decides they don't like your next book and then they're gone. <laughs> like mm. you can't, um, you can't necessarily count on that, but if you want to build those true fans, you've got to either do the work better than everybody else or get people personally invested in you where you've made a personal connection. And I know, you know, a lot of times, and this kind of goes back to, you know, the idea that authors really hate marketing and promoting a lot of times. And to some degree I do too. I wish I could put my books up on Amazon and they would just sell no matter what. And they won't, they have to be promoted. You have to send emails out. You have to pay for some, some things for people to just see the books. Um, But when I was younger and was reading books, there were times where I finished a book and just wished I could send that author a message. And, you know, I'm, 41. So back then there was not email when I was like reading books as a young adult. I couldn't have sent an email to my favorite author to say, I loved your book. I couldn't have done that. In fact, like the only address you could find for them was like the publisher's address in the back of the book, but I never would have thought, okay, this email, this mail, the snail mail is actually going to get to that address and get to this author. So I never sent anything. I would have loved to have had that personal connection. And now in 2019, we as authors have the ability to personally connect with our readers. And that's what social media is. That's what email lists are. That's the ability to bridge that gap that used to exist between the author and the reader. And I think that is so enormous and so important. And so for me, 
when I'm feeling frustrated about Facebook, um, which I am, or Twitter locking me out of my account, which they do daily for some unknown reason, um, I remember this is the way that I talk to my readers. This is the way I personally connect with them. And it reminds me to just be grateful for it and to realize that I'm not just doing some kind of promotional work that I'm connecting with my fans. And I think um, having for every author, that's going to look different. Some I'm pretty personal. Some people will be a lot more, you know, at arm's length and that's fine too. You can still do social media and email successfully being a little bit more hands off. Um, but when you're starting to build those true fans and really get that audience of rabid readers, it is going to require more better books or some kind of personal connection that gets them invested in you as an author. Now, I know you're a big fan of email marketing and listening to your podcast, for instance, um, I know that you prefer to go for the the book promo sites that send emails out to readers. And I, I think you're also doing um, uh, book swaps, sort of list swaps as well. Um, can you tell me uh, you know, why, why you're so passionate about email marketing, about the way to market your books? And then I've got a sub question in there. Apologies for making it in part. But I, I, I've been reticent about doing book swaps because my internet marketing experience tells me that kind of kills a list when you're sending out somebody else's stuff all the time and it almost breaks that rule that you've talked about building up that close relationship so c- could you also talk to that as well a little bit sure so i'm passionate about email marketing because i think the research continues to show that email marketing sells more books and you'll have to just google it because i don't <laughs> okay <laughs> here's the link for that but tim grawl who um is well known in these communities has launched tons of bestsellers um, talks about this in his books that he tested this with authors that have giant Twitter followings and have email lists. What sells more books? Email sells more books, hands down. Email also has changed very little since 1990, whatever, when people started using it. People will say, oh, it's a dinosaur. It's outdated. No, it's a classic and it doesn't change a lot. People are still used to email. There are these shiny new Snapchats and things that come and go that may or may not work for marketing, but email is t- tested and tried and true. And and like I mentioned with, with that personal connection, when you send an email, it, you're sending one email to many people, but when they hit reply, it becomes a one-to-one conversation. And that's really huge. I mean, yes, on Twitter, you can have that. You tweet something, someone replies, and then there's like, you know, you can reply back and forth. DMs sometimes can do that, but email it just really has a lot of power. And there's no algorithm. So, um, you know, there's not an algorithm to the inbox. Yes, there are promotional tabs and Gmail and things like that to change. But again, it's way different than having something like Facebook deciding how much content they want people to see because they're Facebook and they can make you pay to play. Um, Very different than email. So that's why I'm really passionate about that. And I have used newsletter swaps to kind of to go towards your second question. Um, Newsletter swaps are basically where authors are emailing their readers other books um, will trade. Someone will email my new release and I'll email their new release, not necessarily on the same day, but we'll, you know, we'll pick the dates and make it work. Um, the reason I think that works well, especially in my genre, again, romance has whale readers. Um, I'm one of them. I read a book a day. You know, I, I'm reading on my Kindle app as I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I'm cooking and my phone is propped up somewhere and I'm reading while I'm stirring stuff on the stove. I'm reading while I'm doing dishes. Uh, that's, just like I was as a child, only then it was with a paperback, and now it's on my phone because it's a lot easier to cart around with me. But, um, you know, the newsletter swaps work better probably in the genres where people are reading a lot. I think if you're publishing less frequently, you don't need to send emails as frequently. I think if you are publishing in a genre where people don't read, you know, like wild people, <laughs> then sending out a lot of books, it may hurt you. Um, I know that in my genre, it works well uh, for now. But, you know, again, I think it's so important to belong to some of these author groups. Facebook has been great. If you find those groups somewhere else, great too. Um, But to talk about what is working right now, is this still working well? Um, And to evaluate as it goes, I'm always testing things. You know, last month, um, well, one of the things I've been testing all along, once I got kind of a backlist, is I would do a free day of my book and use, you know, I'm in Kindle Select, so I would use their free day promotion. I would do a free day in the middle of the month, kind of between new releases. And I would pay for promotions, like $200, which sounds um, like madness when you're paying $200 to promote a book for free. But what I found is um, both that day and the following days, my income would increase. In fact, usually the day after the free day, I would have the highest income of my month 
on that next day because people who didn't open the email on the day it was free opened it the next day, went in and they thought, Hey, I'll still buy your book. Um, my page reads went up, things like that. So I'm testing that. And I, you know, last month tested, okay, what if I only spend $50 on the promotions? What happened? I didn't make as much money. Yeah, I made my money back. I made that $50 back. But instead of making like $400 that next day, as I did in, I think, January or December or January, when I did a free day, the next day I made like four or $500, which is more than I usually make in a day. This, you know, in whatever month I didn't pay for as many promotions on the free book, the next day I made $200, which is a lot more normal for me. So it's almost like it didn't matter. Um, and so it's testing those things and figuring out, okay, what what can I do? And my goal is is generally to spend as little money as possible to make as much money as I want. Um, and so that requires the testing to say, okay, if I spend $50, I may end up, you know, paying that off and then making a little bit. But if I spend $200, then I'm going to make 400 the next day, which pays for it and then some. And then that next day, I made almost 400 again. And so the sales just continued. So um, I think for the email, it's the same kind of thing. You need to test and see, is, is this something that works for my genre? And if you're not sure, ask other authors in your genre. If you don't know other authors in your genre, then you need to, because I think that that is vastly important to know what is working for those other authors, what they're publishing, um, you know, and what their publishing schedule. Does once a month work for them? Once a month really works for romance writers. For other genres, once a month would be too much, maybe even. Um, it's definitely not. I have readers saying, when's your next book coming out? And I'm like, i put out one last week. And they're like, well, I read it. When's the next one? So that's the kind of readers that are in my genre, which is great. Um, because again, I need to make an income here. Um, and I enjoy it. So I think for email though, that is again, what you've got to ask yourself is, does this work for my genre and what I'm writing? Um, but email generally, um, is, is a much shorter bet than something like Twitter or Facebook. So if you are paying for promotions, and this is kind of a tangent, but, but just to think about it, if you're paying for promotions, and there's something like a Facebook promotion, you're going to get more money if you pay for an email promotion versus a Facebook promotion. Is is And I've actually tested that as well and found that to be, I sort of knew it would be true and then it was. So I'm mindful that you've got to do the school run in a moment. So I am watching the time, honestly. Um, but I just wanted to ask you if you could wind back the clock to the December before you started doing the, the Emerson mm -hmm. Clare work and you could whisper in your ear and say, look, if you just do these three things, this is going to move the needle substantially for you. You're going to start earning a, a living income from these books. What would you say to yourself? What sort of tips would you give yourself? Sure. I would tell myself to read more in my genre. Um, I would tell myself to... Um, Make sure my covers were on point. Mine were okay, but they were not completely on point. And I would tell myself to uh, really pay close attention to the other authors doing well in my genre. Not just other authors in my genre, but other authors doing well. And they won't always say that, um, but kind of you can go on Amazon and see what books are what rank. Um, and you can kind of, you can spy on them. Um, and that's okay. That's a, not a bad thing. Uh, but those are the three things that I think have made the most difference in moving the needle that once I started doing those things, it got easier to write the books because I knew more of what was expected. Um, I did better with my books because I knew what was expected. And that's what I was writing. And then my covers were incredibly clear. I thought they were pretty good to begin with, but um, really they weren't as good as they needed to be. And that doesn't mean I paid more for them. I usually pay under $50 for covers. Um, and, and again, this isn't possible in something like um, you know, space opera or, you know, even paranormal, sometimes you have to have a much more beautiful cover with something different with romance. It's pretty, it can be pretty simple. So I'm able to spend less for covers. Um, but it does mean you need to be a lot more intentional with the covers. So those are the things that I would tell myself and I would have made a lot more money faster. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't writing as fast then I needed to write a book that took three months, um, to understand, the writing of it and to understand that I didn't have to spend three months on the next book to write it. So. So the last thing I wanted to say to you, uh, it's nothing about writing. It's about the fantastic music you have at the beginning and the end of your podcast and how much I love listening to that music every week. Um, it's just, I think you've got the best podcast music in the whole of podcast land. I love that song. And I think it's from an old college mate of yours, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So I used to play uh, guitar and write songs in college and, uh, you know, play out at like the open mics and the bars in town. And there was another girl. We weren't actually even friends. We were sort of like the rivals because she was another girl with a guitar and <laughs> playing the same <laughs> bars. And um, she probably didn't think of 
me as a rival, but I sort of did a little bit. And um, anyway, Jasmine Commerce, and she is still doing that professionally. And I'm not because in the end, I don't love it. And I'm not that good. Um, but she and I stayed in touch and I followed her career. And so I just asked her because I know podcast, you know, music, you can get all these free things and it's okay, but you have to use the right royalty and the right licensing and everything like that. So I just asked her, would you be willing to do that? If I tell people about your music and I, I agree, I think it's the best music. Jasmine is amazing. Um, and she's just a phenomenal artist. And I love that she's still doing it all these years later that I can use for music now. It's kind of uh, a fun thing too, that we knew each other. So yeah, it's brilliant. I love listening to it every week. I love listening to that music. So I know you've got to go and get the kids now. I just wanted to congratulate you on your amazing breakthrough success and to just thank you for the podcast because uh, I was en- I've always enjoyed it, but I've been getting so much value. I'm just listening and re-listening to episodes since September and just hanging on to your every word and just you know milking all the juice from every episode. So <laughs> thanks ever so much for producing those and, and may that success continue. I, you know, I wish you all the best with it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. It was great to talk to you about writing and life and everything else. That was Kirsten Oliphant, and you can subscribe to her excellent weekly podcast at creativewriting.com. I'll be back with another podcast diary on Saturday, the 11th of May. Until then, I hope you have a great week of writing. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.